As you are taking your seats, please turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. We're going to, you guys have the rare treat of starting uh, two new books of scripture, two consecutive Sundays in a row, or at least I think it's a treat. Um, This should be on page 785 if you're looking in your pew Bibles. And bow in prayer with me, if you would. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the the richness and depth of your word. We thank you for uh, the canon of the word that you have preserved down to us through the ages, Lord, and that it is so easily accessible to us today. As uh, we approach the book of Habakkuk this morning, a book that is perhaps seldom read and uh, somewhat obscure in the canon of your word, we pray that uh, you would open our hearts and our minds uh, to what you would have to teach us from your word and that we would apply these precious truths in your word to our hearts, our minds, and our very lives as we go out and about our week and interact with our neighbors. In Christ's name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand, at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by, light the wind, and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. 
Is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is the word of our Lord given to us in love. About a year ago, a friend and former co-worker of mine told me that he sensed uh, that everything around him was stacked against him. He had recently lost his uncle to cancer, which was, at least in his mind, several decades premature. At this time, he was also dealing with the shock of being fired from our former employer on the basis of accusations that even the most of the executives at the company realized had no merit whatsoever. And though this man was not a Christian, he knew fully well that I am. And given the gravity of injustice that he perceived himself to be suffering in this life, he asked me a question that we all must wrestle with at one time or another, and that we would theologically classify as a question of theodicy. Now in its most basic form, the question of theodicy refers to the vindication of God in light of the presence of evil and suffering which are all around us in the world. The core of this question of theodicy is then to ask how can God be righteous, good, and all-powerful in light of the evil that we observe around us? Indeed, we we need not be Christians for very long before this question inevitably arises in our own hearts and we all must wrestle with this weighty perplexity that so often produces a crisis of faith. In fact, the failure of the church to provide a sound answer to this question is one of the most commonly cited reasons that children who grow up in households of faith in the church uh, walk away from the church and the faith altogether. We find it easy to be consumed with all that is going on around in the world around us as we live in a society that even this very month delights in calling evil good and good evil. In the midst of endless wars, genocide, crime, and a general sense of despair, we may be tempted to ask why God would permit such evil in this world, since we believe that he is perfectly good and all-powerful. Contrary to the scriptures, some Christians would answer that it is because God has chosen to give man some sort of libertarian free will where God does not ordain all things that come to pass and there is nothing that constrains man from making any choice that he desires. Such a view would consequently argue that because God has given man a sort of free will that he is not responsible for or even able to prevent the evil that we do see around us in this world. Yet another view, a more philosophical view, has stated that evil itself is merely the absence of good and not an existent reality in itself. So it's through these thick and muddy waters that surround this question, Habakkuk has been passed to us in the biblical canon as one of the most obscure and least known books of the scriptures. And yet the prophet asks this precise question of theodicy that we all must ultimately wrestle with. At its core, Habakkuk records a struggle of faith for the prophet as the Lord's response proved increasingly difficult to reconcile with his own perceptions of God and who he is. And this gets at our big idea this morning. 
namely that we are to grow in faith when things do not seem as they should be. We are to grow in faith when things do not seem as they should be. While we will not be able to cover the full substance of what Habakkuk has to teach us in regard to the prophet's question this morning, uh, we do observe three foundational premises in our passage that undergird the whole message of the book. First, we see that the unfolding circumstances of society are contrary to our expectations. The circumstances of society are contrary to our expectations. Secondly, we see that the ordering of circumstances is the sovereign work of God. The ordering of circumstances is his sovereign work. Finally, and thirdly, we observe the posture of faith that Habakkuk himself takes up while attempting to make sense of the circumstances around us. Let us then turn to the text of scripture without further ado and examine first how things are contrary to our own expectations for living in covenant with God as his people. Look with me, if you would, in your Bibles at verse 1, where we read the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Immediately upon reading this very first sentence of our passage, we are greeted with a mystery, namely, who is Habakkuk? The Hebrew word for the name Habakkuk evokes imagery of a tender embrace as a way to keep warm. Alternative explanations is that it's in reference to a flower that's native to Israel. But given the overarching themes that we'll see unfold as we work our way through this book, this understanding of the meaning of the prophet's name and being in reference to a warm and tender embrace seems most appropriate. Habakkuk both embraces the coming disaster that he does not understand by faith, and he clings to God's remembrance of him and the people of God by faith. Beyond this possible significance of Habakkuk's name, we actually do not know much else about him uh, outside of this book in the scriptures. Uh, he was likely a contemporary of fellow prophets like Nahum, Zephaniah, and Jeremiah, as all of these prophets immediately preceded the Babylonian exile, which we will expound upon shortly. The immediate context that we observe in this book of Habakkuk itself places it as immediately prior to the Babylonian exile of God's people, and possibly he was writing from Jerusalem itself. But given all these ambiguities, what is vital to understand about Habakkuk is that he is a genuine prophet called by God who received an oracle from the Lord, which contains important information for us as to what is happening to the people of Israel from a disciplinary standpoint. Habakkuk also gives God's people instruction concerning the posture of faith that they are to take up when they are in exile. If you look at this, this phrase, this first verse in other Bible translations, you may notice that the word oracle is instead translated as burden. Uh, this is indeed a valid and even preferable translation of this word because it fits with the thematic elements of the book of Habakkuk as we've already alluded to. The exile of God's people is imminent at this point in time and in light of this burden, the prophecy of the book is given to God's people in order to make it abundantly clear why this is happening and what the people's response should be. Of significance is also that the prophet does not merely receive the prophecy from the Lord, but he saw it. 
The prophecy did not originate from his own subconscious, but rather came to him externally and objectively from outside of himself, from the Lord God of Israel. Moving then more directly into our first premise this morning, where we see that things are contrary to our expectations, our circumstances are contrary to our expectations, uh, especially in light of the Lord's covenant with his people, let's return to the scriptures and look at verse 2, where he writes, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? From this verse, we learn that Habakkuk was fervently praying to the Lord that the Lord would correct the people and their wickedness. We rightfully get the impression that the prophet has been earnestly in prayer and crying out about the cultural context in which he finds himself for quite some time. Yet what is disconcerting to the prophet is that the Lord seems distant from correcting his people and saving them from this calamity that has been brought about by themselves. The God who bore his people on eagles' wings during the exodus from Egypt and who called the people his treasured possession among all the peoples of the earth when the covenant was first instituted seems distant. He doesn't respond to Habakkuk's prayers of pleading in a way that, at least superficially, is in line with the prophet's expectations of God hearing and saving his people. Though at first the prophet's plea of how long may seem out of place and even imprudent, we must remember that even the saints and perfections asked in Revelation 6.10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Yet even here in this verse in Revelation, the Lord's answer to them is to give them a white robe and to tell them to wait a little longer until the number of the martyrs for the faith are fulfilled. And although our Lord God is the perfect administrator of justice, he nevertheless agonizes with his people in their grief, even if justice is delayed for his good purposes, as we will see later, even in this passage. Continuing then in verses three through four, we read, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. In these verses, we get to the heart of the central question of theodicy in this book. Remember, theodicy is to ask, how can God allow evil in this world despite the fact that he is perfect, good, and omnipotent? Why does God stand passively by, Habakkuk asks, while his people engage in all manner of sin and transgression of the covenant, given that he is good and powerful? You don't have to read very much of the Old Testament before you find a chosen people, God's chosen people, Uh, abounding in all manner of sin and idolatry, and the Lord's gentle hand continually rebuking them. J.K. Bruckner writes in his commentary on this passage, in a few brief words, Habakkuk describes a society ruined, full of crime, violence, corruption, mock legal battles, and the defeat of the righteous, and he wants to know why God tolerates it. 
Not only does the Lord seem distant, but the Lord also does not appear to be disciplining his people in the way that Habakkuk expects, given the stipulations of the covenant. For example, when describing the covenant curses that would befall the people if they transgressed or broke God's covenant, Moses writes in Deuteronomy 28.20, the Lord will send, on you, will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. Habakkuk's example demonstrates the indignation and disgust at the sin that he sees around him, as we ourselves are also called to do. However, the Lord doesn't seem to be so moved by this sin, strife, and contention that has permeated among his people, at least not in the way that the prophet Habakkuk does. The justice and equity mandated by God's law, the Torah, is paralyzed because the wicked permeate society to such an extent that justice itself, when it flows forth, flows forth perverted. And in his commentary on this verse, O. Palmer Robertson rightly observes, the best law in the world profits nothing if its statutes are not maintained. Like the prophet, we may, ourselves may look around at our circumstances with the evil and disarray around us and ask, how long, O Lord? While these troubles may seem enduring to us, it's important for us to realize that the Lord does not leave his people in such an estate. Such is the case for the prophet as the Lord promptly responds to his complaint, though again, not in the way that he likely expects. Moving on to the second premise of our sermon this morning, where we get a glimpse of how God is yet still sovereign over the circumstances around us, let us look once more at the beginning of the Lord's response to Habakkuk's complaint in verses five through six. Look at the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. In this passage, the prophet is invited to look outside of what he is seeing all around him and his personal expectations for how God would deal with his people. For us, as the modern readers of this book, this portion of the sacred scriptures, the effect is that our attention is drawn away from the horizontal and directed more vertically to the Lord and his providential work in dealing with the wickedness and sin among his people. Interestingly, the Lord does not rebuke Habakkuk for his analysis of the iniquity, violence, and perversion of justice in Israel. Rather, what the Lord does do is he definitively responds that he is far from being a passive and distant deity. The Lord God is actively working, even in the very days that Habakkuk is pleading with him. He does hear the prophet, and he is not deaf to his questions. But Habakkuk, like us, cannot see beyond his own uh, perceptions and expectations to the wondrous work and astounding work that the Lord is doing for his own glory. Yet here, in this part of the sacred scriptures, the Lord graciously gives his people a window into his providential work, 
even if it is found to be contrary to the prophet's own desire and assumptions. If we examine this portion of the text in a variety of Bible translations, uh, you may note that the Chaldeans may be used interchangeably with the Babylonians. This is because the Chaldeans is a biblical name for the Neo-Babylonian empire centered on the city of Babylon itself. And we can readily observe this fact in Jeremiah 21, 4, which reads, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls. Indeed, this phrase of our text is helpful, is a, is a helpful clue for us um, for dating the book of Habakkuk within the sequence of events in Israel's history. We are at a point in time where God's people have been divided into a northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has been conquered and oppressed by the Assyrians for the repeated transgressions of God's covenant. However, even until this point, Judah, the southern kingdom, has remained in their own sins of idolatry. Although the Assyrian Empire represented the most powerful nation in the world up until this point, here the Lord tells Habakkuk that the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, centered on modern-day Iraq, are being raised up to conquer the known world, including the Assyrians. This startling revelation would place the writing of Habakkuk to immediately prior the conquest of the southern kingdom Judah sometime before 598 BC. And although the Babylonians are this up and coming empire that will represent the most powerful nation in the world, God tells Habakkuk that he is raising them up for this very purpose. And not merely at some arbitrary date in the future, but in your very days that the Lord is indeed active and moving. Though they are an evil people and move rapidly to conquer the whole earth and take dwellings that are not their own, God is the one who raised them up. Habakkuk's initial complaint asks the Lord, how long? But God answers that he is actively working now. Even in the very days of Habakkuk, as he considers the nations as but a drop in the bucket and grasps the hands of rulers to subdue nations before him. Although God's people are most assuredly under judgment, as we will see later in our text, we must not numb ourselves to the fact that the Lord has his purposes in view and they go beyond merely disciplining his people to bringing about his own glory beyond the nations. And ironically, in God's providential work, the Babylonians are being raised up to do what God's people themselves were called to do to the people who already dwelt in the promised land. By taking dwellings that are not their own due to the iniquities of those, of those people, the Canaanites that were in the land before them, as we read in passages like Deuteronomy chapter six and seven. Continuing on then in our passage in verse seven, we read that they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Somewhat paradoxically, this powerful nation who answers to no one and is their own source of justice and dignity is but a pawn carefully crafted by God for his very purposes. They are the dreaded of the earth, but the Lord is at work in them and moving. 
Although it may superficially seem that the power of the Babylonians is so intrinsic to themselves, here the Lord leaves no room for such erroneous thinking. Because the Lord raises them up and gives them such power over the nations for his purposes as we already saw. Moving on in verses 8 through 11, we then read that their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. These verses press the Lord's ironic point home. No one can stand before the mighty army of the Babylonians. In great swiftness and agility, these armies think nothing of the vast distances, as the Lord again emphasizes the speed with which this ravenous army moves like a pack of wolves, ready to devour. Their horses and horsemen are resolute, and they are swift in the utmost confidence. Although the army itself may seem innumerable, they all press forward with one face set towards a unified mission and goal, namely to conquer and make captives of the nations as numerous as the very grains of sand. Nothing can stand in their way, certainly no king and no fortress. They overwhelm their adversaries as if they are mere obstacles, even piling up impressive earthworks to get over the city walls. And then they quickly move on to their next conquest, like a sweeping wind. <clears throat> However, although the Lord does raise up this mighty nation providentially, the Babylonians are still wicked and guilty men. While it seems obvious that they are the Lord's instruments of discipline, they themselves are still ultimately subject to God's displeasure and judgment of his wrath, as we will see, uh, Lord willing, on the next sermon of this book. In view of the astonishing answer that the Lord sets before Habakkuk, this is a glimmer of comfort to the prophet and indeed to God's people as a whole. Even here, God reveals that he is not acting in a manner that is inconsistent with his own nature and covenant promises that he gives his people. He had promised the people their own military defeat and exile when the people break covenant with him, as Moses writes again in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your kingdom, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. So far from being a distant and passive God that Habakkuk had complained of initially, the Lord is active and providentially working the very discipline of his people, as he promised. And even the instrument of his discipline themselves are not exempt from the guilt and displeasure of God. Having seen how the Lord is sovereign and yet working, we may finally observe our third point of our sermon this morning, the posture of faith that Habakkuk takes on. And even in the midst of new questions that arise, 
which Habakkuk takes up in his second complaint, as we will read shortly. So follow again with me, if you would, in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. This is a remarkable response of faith. Here we see that the Lord's first response did indeed have the intended effect on the prophet of drawing his attention towards the Lord and his sovereign work rather than merely perceiving the wickedness and strife around him. Even within the first question of this verse, we see the prophet recognizing afresh that the Lord is eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting with no beginning and no end. His purposes and will are firmly fixed from eternity. The present burden of wickedness and imminent captivity is not the last word because the Lord is his God and his Holy One. The Lord is his very own righteousness in a personal and very near sense. And by saying that the Lord's people will not perish, Habakkuk expresses an unwavering conviction that the Lord remains unchanging and faithful to his covenant promises and in accordance with his everlasting character. The next phrase then indicates that the prophet does understand how the coming exile fits into the context of God's own covenant faithfulness. And as he disciplines his people with the curses of the covenant, as we have already alluded to from Deuteronomy, this act of discipline is not brought about by any change in God, the rock of ages, but rather because of the transgressions of God's covenant people. Continuing then in verse 13, we read, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? After receiving the Lord's response and recognizing that he is indeed not distant, but actively and intricately working to bring about this coming rebuke of God's people, Habakkuk gets to the very heart of the issue between what he perceives as God's work uh, with his revealed will and nature. So unwilling to compromise the holiness of God who does hate all workers of iniquity as we read in Psalm 5, the prophet is still left to wonder why the Lord looks at the traitorous transgressors of his covenant and yet uses a nation that is even more wicked than they are. Given such foundational premises of God's character as being of purer of eyes than to see evil highlights his hatred of sin, surely then it would make more sense to reprove wicked Israel with a nation more righteous than they. The reality of God's purity and holiness really only serves to perplex and confound Habakkuk's reasoning even further. The prophet further expounds on this core question with a bold analogy that we read in verses 4 through 17. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net 
and makes offerings to his dradnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Here the prophet still does not shy away from God's sovereignty and ponders the responsibility that God bears in bringing all things to pass as we confess and believe. Uh, even including the subjection and captivity of God's people through the Babylonian conquest. In Habakkuk's analogy, which we have just read, the peoples of the earth are like the fishes of the sea, wandering to and fro without organization or a ruling king to offer protection for them. The Babylonian king is like a fisherman who draws up all the fish of the sea with a hook and a net, both literally and figuratively. Literally, in that we learn from other extra-biblical sources that the Babylonians continued the practice of the Assyrians in actually driving a hook through the lower lip of their captives and stringing them out single file in their humiliation. This gives the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, all the more reason to be prideful and arrogant as their nets or their army provides all that they need to live in luxury. And consequently, they worship their own devices of torture and cruelty, as we already saw in verse 16. And the force of the prophet's analogy is as if to say that by God ordaining them as judgment upon his people, he is enabling the very thing that causes the Babylonians to take pride in their wickedness. Habakkuk asks, how long will God permit the Babylonians to continue doing this? The prophet starts his second complaint with the statement of faith that we've already observed. Yet, even the revelation of God's plan to raise up the, up the Babylonians in judgment seems to indicate that his compassion has wavered. Make no mistake, the accusation in the prophet's analogy is quite bold, but it nevertheless remains a valid question. And yet he doesn't desire to abandon his posture of faith in God's goodness and character that we first observed in verse 12. Rather, Habakkuk understands that he is not privy to the secret counsel of God and ends his complaint with a newfound stance, ready to listen and yet respond again in the first verse of chapter two, which reads, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So throughout the course of our passage this morning, the prophet has moved from a perspective that God was distant and passive to recognizing that he is indeed still ordering all things providentially that come to pass in accordance with his will. Yet perplexities remain. He is still perplexed as to why God would use a nation more wicked than his people to discipline his people. Rather than looking at the sin and the estate of the society around him, Habakkuk places himself at his watchpost to alleviate and remove all things that may distract him from the Lord and what the Lord's next response will be. Of this verse, John Calvin writes in his commentary, we ought to connect this verse with the complaints, which we have noticed before. For the prophet, finding himself sinking, and as it were, overwhelmed in the deepest abyss, raises himself up above the judgment and reason of men. 
and comes nearer to God that he might see from on high the things which take place on earth and not judge according to the understanding of his own flesh, but by the light of the Holy Spirit. And yet Habakkuk's posture also indicates that he is bracing himself uh, for rebuke from the Lord and is himself preparing an answer to the Lord, God himself. We must be careful with this statement, however, in thinking that Habakkuk's stance is imprudently or intentionally antagonistic towards God. But rather, we must gleam, as we see as in other places in the scriptures, that disputing one's case with God is not necessarily intended to show God where he is wrong, but rather to obtain wisdom from God in understanding through pleading the case or the cause. Perhaps the most plain example of this that we do see in the scriptures is that of Job and his desire to dispute his case before God. Such a dispute is intended, even in that case, to bring about divine clarification of the issue that baffles the human party. And is likely intent, it, it, it's also what is likely intended when God encourages and even invites his people to reason, or more literally translated, dispute with him in Isaiah 1.18. Such a posture is one of faith because it is not intended to write God off as some, from some sort of fictitious moral high ground that we may devise for ourselves. Rather, this posture is to ask the incomprehensible God to condescend his people, as we even talked about this morning in the liturgy, or in this case, that Habakkuk the prophet, that God would condescend to him and help him understand. Having then expounded upon what this portion of the scriptures teaches us, we must now turn to the question of how this would be applied to our own lives. From our sermon this morning, we have two principal applications. Firstly, know the Lord as he is revealed in the scriptures. Know the Lord as he has been revealed in the scriptures. God is the Holy One of Israel who created and ordained whatsoever comes to pass for his own good purposes. He is unchanging and he is of too pure of eyes than to see evil. If your God is not sovereign or if he is distant, passive, and changing, then he is not the God of the scriptures. As we suffer, let us also look to Christ in his own sufferings. Robinson writes of this passage before us today that God's people are repeatedly compelled to struggle with the depth of the suffering that falls on God's own. If it were possible for the feeble human mind to grasp in some small way the reality of the sufferings of the Son of God, it would no doubt reel in stunned awe, for both the depth of God's righteousness and the depth of his love are incomprehensible. Our second application is to place your trust and attention upon the Lord and his word rather than your circumstances and the wickedness around us. We find it all too easy to become consumed by looking at the decay of our society that even this very month is again rejoicing in what God calls evil and calling it good. We see the wars and the pestilence that rage around us and the distrust and hatred that people have for one another and ask, how long, O Lord? Both of these principles find their pinnacle of application 
by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and in him, the full justice flows forth to the nations, even if that justice may appear to be delayed for a season. And although we must be careful to note that not every suffering in this life is a disciplinary action of God, we can take heart knowing that through Christ, not only our discipline, but every suffering and trial that we endure is for our good and God's glory. Although we may not understand how precisely these things may edify us even on this side of eternity, we can trust that the Lord God is good. Let us then look to Christ as the object of our faith as we seek to live and obey him. Are we looking to Christ by faith instead of having our attentions drawn to the world around us? Bow in prayer with me. Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness and its depth and its clarity. And as we ponder these weighty truths that uh, you have for us from the book of Habakkuk, may, us, may we be diligent to uh, consider these things, to search the scriptures and see that these things are so, and to rightly apply these to our own lives as we look at, in faith to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who... Uh, gives us his own righteousness and takes our sin upon him on the cross. We rejoice in that. We thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.